Welcome, everyone, to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. I have as my guest today, Keith Giles. We are discussing the 1986 film, The Mission. Uh, and so, Keith, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your, your background. Uh, and so, so, my understanding is that you were at one point a pastor, is that correct? Yeah. Um, yes, I was. I, I was licensed and ordained and as a Southern Baptist pastor, golly, I guess about 27 years ago or so, and uh, have served. I, I served at Southern Baptist churches, of course, in the beginning, but then when we moved to California, that was in Texas, and when I moved to California, uh, my wife and I got involved in the Vineyard uh, Church, and I basically have done everything except senior pastor. So I was a associate pastor, youth minister, music minister, um, children's pastor. Um, we did compassion ministries, which was ministry to the poor and a community and stuff. So I've, I've done a, a whole bunch of things. Uh, yeah. Over those years. And. Um, right. And so and I think at this point you're, you're kind of a little bit more connected with like sort of an organic house church kind of movement. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So about, I guess it's now 11 years ago. Um, my wife and I, we were we were at a church here in California. Um, it was a vineyard church that we had helped to plant from scratch. First time we'd ever done that with some friends of ours. And it was amazing. It was really a wonderful experience to plant a church, especially with friends uh, in ministry. And we were doing children's ministry and compassion ministry again, which was ministry to the poor in the community here in California. And we did that for about three and a half years. And around that time, near the end of that three and a half years, my wife and I started feeling the Lord speak to us about leaving to start to plant another church. And uh, we thought that would be great. Prayed about it and, you know, uh, just decided, okay, God, we'll do it. And it was sort of like after we had said yes to God that we would do that, then the next thing the Lord said to us was he wanted us to plant a church where 100% of the offerings collected went, all of it went to care for the poor in the community and none of it went to like my, my salary or a building or a sound system or, you know, equipment for the, for the worship band or any of that, not even coffee and donuts. <laughs> we were excited about that vision. Really. I thought, I, I just couldn't imagine, you know, someone saying, Hey, where do you go to church? Oh, we go to this church where all of the offering is given to the poor in the community and no one takes a salary and be like, what, who does that? <laughs> um, so we were really excited about that. We thought, wow, that's awesome. And, and that was really in our minds patterned after uh, some studying that we had done about the early church and, you know, poor DNA for the early church was caring for the poor, the orphans and the widow. And, you know, even uh, the Romans, you know, in the first century complained that the Christians were burying not only their own dead, but, but the, the Roman, the pagan uh, dead. And like, why would they do that? You know, it was just an incredible uh, expression of love for, for the outcast. And so anyway, that's, that's what, what we felt like I was calling us to do. And then we said yes right. to that. And, but, but then practically it was sort of like, well, how do we do that? How in the heck do we have a church where I don't take a salary? Cause I had, you know, I, at the time I had two little boys and my wife and myself to take care of. And, um, it took us a couple of days and we figured out that what we should do is I would just go get a job, uh, in the workforce and, we would meet in homes because then we didn't have to pay rent and uh, and then we could afford to do what God was calling us to do. And so that's exactly what we did. About 11 years ago, we stepped away from full-time ministry 
uh, we started a church that started originally in, a, in, a, in our house. Now it rotates different houses here in Orange County. And we give, we've been giving away uh, the offering to help the poor in our community. And we've been doing that, like I said, 11 years, and it's the best thing I've ever done with the word church on it. It's just been a fantastic experience. Um, yeah, I would never, ever go back. It's been great. Wow, that's amazing. So um, th th there's another interesting transition that you made that I think is kind of relevant to this film. And it's also the sort of a subject of a book that you recently released. And uh, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, and I apologize to everybody. I, I think I have some um, allergies or something. On my, all of a sudden my nose is running. So I'm, I'm sniffling. I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so yeah. Um, I guess the, the second transition that you're talking about was uh, again, I was raised in Texas, and I I, I was raised in a, a Christian home, but also a very strong Republican. So since the moment I was legally able to register to vote, I was voting straight-ticket Republican. I joined the NRA. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. I owned three firearms. Um, you know, I was uh, I was as deep, deep, deep as I could be in that in that reality. And I couldn't imagine being a Christian. In fact, to me, being a Christian was being uh, good Republican and a good American. And, um, and, and so I was very entangled. My, my politics and my faith were very entangled that I, I realized later the Lord started showing me maybe about three or four years ago, um, started showing me that I was more American than I was Christian. And that, um, that wasn't a good thing that I couldn't separate my faith from my politics. And I, I didn't know where the kingdom of God ended and the, United States of America began, and and, then, and so anyway, slowly I started realizing that the two were not the same thing. That that I couldn't really truly say I was following Jesus uh, if I had such a strong allegiance to my nation and um, you know nationalism and that kind of thing. So slowly, bit by bit, the Lord started. I started praying about it, you know, asking Him to show me uh, places in my life that I was entangled, my faith and my politics were entangled, and. And he began to do that. And then I started writing, I wrote a book. So um, the book is called Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And um, it's my first book with a publisher. I, I have self-published other books in the past, but this is my first one with a publisher. And it's been a fantastic experience. Um, I had no way of knowing, honestly, when I was writing the book last year, that uh, when the book came out, the book released on Inauguration Day, uh, January 20th this year. And um, it's obviously because of the, the what's been going on in politics and, and, and in the church and how the collision of those things. Uh, I'm sure the timing has a lot to do with it. Most of the book has been really, really positive. And in fact, I was just visiting Cincinnati where I met you face to face mm -hmm. and uh, did a little book uh, event out there. And I've got a couple others scheduled um, coming up, one in Nashville next month and one in uh, uh, Colorado uh, the month after, and then one in North Carolina in August. So it's been really great. Uh, it's been a great experience. And what I'm, I was expecting a whole lot more from people. I thought I'd get death threats and rocks thrown through my window uh, for writing such a book. Uh, but instead, actually, what I mostly received is a whole lot of people coming up to me and saying, thank you for putting into words what I've been thinking and feeling for a long time. So uh, it's, it's been, yeah, it's, it's actually been very well received. No, yeah, and I, yeah, I think that there's 
there's, it's it's been a long time coming that a lot of Christians are feeling very disillusioned with that kind of marriage to uh, politics that, that the church has sort of had in the United States. And um, I think, yeah, for, for, for sure, the there's a lot of disillusionment, especially around the, the current president, uh, mm-hmm. who I think is maybe giving people even more of a reason to want to look for alternative ways of looking at these issues. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's, it's, I definitely recommend people check out the book, particularly if this is kind of a new idea to them or if they've been sort of mulling this over but haven't have struggled to find the language to sort of work through these issues. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great book. And uh, I have it on Kindle and I got it on Audible as well, which is really convenient. And uh, it's also a physical book as well. So whatever's most convenient for the, <laughs> for the reader. Yeah. We tried to cover all the bases, actually. So, <laughs> and I was very That's excited to get, to get the audio book out because I had so after, after when the book first came out, it was only on Kindle and paperback, and I had, and I'm all excited. Hey, my book is out! I had so many people come up to me, mostly younger people like your age, because um, you're younger than me, mm-hmm. and uh, but even younger than you, come up to me and say, "Oh, it's great! Uh, is your book on audio?" And I'm like, uh, "No," and people telling me, "Oh, I only read audiobooks, or I only, you know, I only, I only buy audiobooks." So when it finally came out in audio, I was like, finally, okay, great. Now I think I've covered all the bases. Yeah. Well, it's, it's def- I, you know, I, I, I have books in all kinds of formats, but it's definitely very convenient to be able to listen to something while you're driving or at the gym or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that, that's, how, that's how I actually uh, took in the book myself. So yeah. Um, so the, the, connection, the, the connections to the film that we're discussing, I think will be apparent um, shortly. But I, uh, when, when um, after I read your book and, contacted you and I got a sense that you, uh, you you were kind of like me, you were sort of a movie buff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd asked you if you'd seen this film and uh, you would sort of said, oh yeah, I think it's just one of my favorite movies. Um, and um, so I was, was glad to hear that because this is one I wanted to discuss and it was definitely very relevant to, uh, to your book. And um, so I, maybe I'll just kind of start by sort of asking what, what was it about this film that, that you really responded to? Well, you know what's funny because when I this movie came out in '86, right? And so mm-hmm. I think I saw it when it when it came out. Um, and again, because I love Robert De Niro, I'll just say he's probably one of my favorite actors of all time. And I, I probably watched it <clears throat> when it came out. That like, oh great, this is an opportunity to see De Niro act, and he's a fantastic actor. And and I think when I first saw it, um, again, remember when I when I watched it, this was way before I was um, unentangled from my faith and my politics. So Mm -hmm. I think most of those themes went over my head at the time. I don't think I really picked up um, when I first watched it on these underlying themes of uh, really, I didn't notice until I watched it again when you you approached me about, hey, let's do this. Let's talk about this uh, movie. I go, well, gosh, I got to watch it again. So I uh, borrowed it from my neighbor. He had a copy and I watched it again. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and seeing it now, all of a sudden I'm going, oh, wow, that's why Cody wanted me to watch this movie. Because suddenly I could see now, I, I'm noticing this, I think what I thought in the beginning, I thought this is a great movie about faith. Um, I rem- as I remembered it, I think I remembered it as a film about the tension between um, the cross and the sword respond to violence or to threats using violence and the sword do we meet violence with violence or do we respond to violence with love and you know nonviolence and uh, you know that kind of a thing and I think that's what I came away with the first time I watched it 
in general. I think that was, if you had asked me to describe the book, right, if you asked me to describe that movie, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, that's what I would have said, I think. I said, oh, it's a beautiful movie about love and forgiveness and, and uh, you know, the struggle between choosing this, the cross of the sword. And those themes are in there. It totally, you know, I wouldn't be wrong. But I think, you know, the main theme I didn't really notice until later, which is that actually it is a film about what happens when the church becomes entangled with politics and a, a whole lot of people die. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I think uh, before we really start discussing a lot of the themes, I, I might give a very spoilery, so everybody, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the film yet yes. and you don't like it being spoiled for you, then, then you know, <laughs> watch it first and come back. Yes. Uh, so I just wanted to give just, just kind of a, some basic plot details so we can kind of go over the structure of the film so we can then kind of dissect mm -hmm. uh, the themes. But So as I said, the, the film was released in 1986, uh, its director, who, who's one who wasn't too familiar with me, to me, actually, uh, was a gentleman named Roland Joffe, I believe, J-O-F-F-E. Mm -hmm. However, the, the guy who wrote it, Robert Bolt, actually wrote a lot of really excellent films. He wrote Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Man for All Seasons, the, the film about Thomas More, Dr. Zhivago. So he has his, his name on, on a lot of great films. Um, the, uh, the film itself takes place in 1750s, and it's based on some true events, although they, they sort of, you know, add some other things for, for dramatic reasons or, or to, to illustrate a point, but um, the, the basics of the, the, the setting is that the Spanish and Portuguese have, are settling in South America um, um, and, you know, dividing up the land amongst themselves or between themselves. Uh, Jeremy Irons is in the film as a Jesuit priest, um, uh, Father Gabriel, and uh, he's a major figure in the mission to the natives that are there. Uh, De Niro, on the other hand, uh, plays Captain Rodrigo Mendoza, and he's a man stealer, a slaver. Uh, and he kills his brother after catching him in an affair with his wife. Uh, Irons is tasked with bringing De Niro through his penance. And by the end of it, De Niro is a faithful Jesuit priest who identifies strongly with the natives that he once kidnapped. Um, so, as far as the kind of political stuff that's happening here, basically what's happening is the Spanish have outlawed slavery, but the Portuguese haven't. And the same goes for their territories in this region. Um, but there's, uh, there was sort of part of what's happening here is there's this treaty where the Spanish have kind of ceded some land to the uh, Portuguese. And it's really, it's obviously not their land. It's the Guarani, <laughs> which is the tribe right. land. Uh, and so basically there's kind of this arrangement where, the Spanish don't technically uh, allow slavery, but they'll kind of work with the Portuguese and, and buy slaves from them that they've captured and that kind of thing. Um, so Cardinal Altamirano uh, is a representative of the Catholic Church. He comes to determine whether the church will continue to sponsor and protect the mission, which would mean that they would um, you know, basically say, we are going to uh, stand with this tribe. You guys can't kick them out of the land. You can't enslave them. Just leave them alone. Um, so if they do so, though, it's likely going to result in the church, particularly the Jesuit movement, losing its power and influence in Portugal and perhaps all over Europe. And this is the, the era where the Protestant church is rising, and basically states have different churches they can go to if they don't like what the Catholic church is doing. Uh, so the church decides to close the mission and orders that the uh, Guarani leave, as well as the Jesuits. But uh, De Niro's character in Irons 
character, and actually some of the other Jesuits there, decide to stay with the Gorani. But De Niro and Irons split over the best way uh, to respond to the Spanish-Portuguese armies that are coming in to violently kill and remove the Guarani. And De Niro basically decides he's going to help them to violently react. And Irons essentially says, well, you know, nonviolence is, is the answer here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, very quickly, as I said, a lot of the details aren't necessarily historically accurate. So, for example, I don't think that there's any evidence of Jesuits abandoning their order to remain with the natives, unfortunately. But um, there are some stories that are – there were some historical events that are kind of similar to that. One that came to mind was uh, Pedro Claver, who was a uh, someone in Colombia who was a Jesuit who sided with the uh, the slaves that were being brought over from Africa in particular. Um, so it's not completely uh, out of left field, but this particular historical event didn't happen quite the way it happens in the film, but it does allow, by sort of creating these scenarios, it does allow for an exploration of some pretty interesting themes of, um, you know, faith and violence and the church and state and, and the, the influence of power upon the church and those kinds of things. So, uh, and, uh, you know, a quick note about the aesthetics of it too. Um, I thought visually it was very rich, I mean, regardless of where it's being filmed. You know, the, the scenes with the Guarani that are sort of more in nature are, are absolutely stunning. And I remember the sort of the, in the beginning of the film, there's this sort of um, festival in town, and that's, you know, bright and beautiful to watch. And so visually, I thought it was it was a wonderful film. What, how, how, did you, how did you feel about the aesthetics of it? Oh, it's beautifully filmed. Yeah, um, it's certainly that. There's very a lot of very beautiful shots, like um, aerial shots of the landscape and the forest, and you know the, the rainforest and stuff. It's it's gorgeous. It's really beautifully beautiful landscape as well as just beautifully filmed. Uh, it's funny too because I I had remembered this film. I I mean, if you'd have asked me before, I would have said, yeah, I think that was a Martin Scorsese film because I really mm-hmm. thought it was. Uh, and so, in other words, it's not as you said. It's uh, it's by uh, Jaffe, but um, um, who did the Killing Fields and some other stuff? But yeah, it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's very beautifully shot, um, and and the, and the score is amazing too. The music's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I love this. I I actually had heard the score before I watched the film, so <laughs> I was familiar with the score from from hearing in other places. Um, yeah, and actually, that's uh, an, uh, what's his name, Ennio Morricone, the guy that did all this. Spaghetti westerns and stuff, and um, oh wow, fantastic! Um, you're very well known, you know. Uh, what do you what do you call him? Scorer, composer. <laughs> composer thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we could kind of go on to talk about some of the, the themes that are there a lot. There's a few notes that I have of themes that really stood out to me. Um, you know, uh, I have them under the sort of headings of love, power, violence, and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, there, there may be other other ones that are that are pretty central that I've missed, but um, those definitely stood out to me as, as some of the major major thrusts of the film. Um, maybe I'll just just I'll kind of jump in on on one of them. I'll start with love, and maybe we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes. And you know, yeah, you know, yeah, any, anywhere you you want to jump in, you're more than welcome to. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's um, do it. But one thing I I kind of thought was interesting is that love is portrayed in the film in a very Christian kind of way. So we're in love entails sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, so the beginning of the film, um, 
there's this Jesuit priest who goes alone to the natives and the tribe kills them. The Guarani kills this guy. <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, like the, the opening of the film is pretty much the guy uh, getting killed. Yeah. He's, he's attached to a cross and then sent down the river, done a waterfall. And yep. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> which by after, the way, by the way, I'm going to say that's either an amazing stunt or the best rubber doll in the world because yeah. usually when, they, when you watch a movie and they throw like a rubber dummy off of a building or something, you can see it's not real and you can immediately know, Oh, that's, that's a dummy. Oh yeah. But when that shot, I mean, nowadays, nowadays, if we, if we saw that shot, it's a digital effect because a guy, mm -hmm. because it looks like an actual guy on an actual cross going off an actual waterfall. But pretty, I pretty, know pretty major waterfall too. And a massive, like a Niagara Falls waterfall, like a freaking crazy waterfall. Now, but but you and I know back in 1986, they did not have digital effects that good. And even if it would have fooled someone in 86, it would not fool someone in 2017. We would have looked at it and said, oh, that's obviously a special effect. So that seems like a small thing, but I, I honestly don't know. How did they do that? Was it a dummy? I hope it wasn't an actual person because that guy really did die. There's no way somebody could could survive that but yeah shot it's an amazing way to open the film it's uh you certainly get, you know when it happens the first time you're like wow yeah i, I remember thinking that too because it, you definitely didn't feel like it was because they i think it kind of starts it's almost like a close-up shot and it comes yeah. out and yeah, you're like okay, the camera's <laughs> following him as he's floating and you see you know it, it's a kind of a close-up shot of the guy's face and then it does a, it does a little cut as it's you know a wide shot as it's going down but you can tell from the close-up to the wide shot, that's the same guy. I mean, it, at least it looks like yeah. he's moving and he's, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like a, it's like a Buster Keaton level stunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I guess I watched this on uh, VHS because I, I have a VHS copy. So maybe maybe if I watched it on high-definition Blu-ray or something, I would have maybe I would have been able to see <laughs> that it wasn't. But, but it definitely looked real to me. But um. So what, what kind of comes after that is, so this priest is killed and the Jesuits decide they're going to go back and try to communicate with the, this tribe again. So Irons actually originally goes alone and you've kind of watched this. He's, he's, as he's going there, he risks his life both on the journey and in his arrival. And um, so there, there's this, this kind of idea that this love that he has for them entails a certain at least possible sacrifice that you to love means you sort of go out of your way and you take a risk. Hmm. Um, and I, I remember um, when he's talking to De Niro later after he's trying to kind of help him with his um, um, penance, um, De Niro about his brother and he says, you loved him, although you chose a strange way to show it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this idea that, you know, De Niro is a human being and he knows he can experience love as well, but he doesn't experience love in the right way. Yeah. Um, and, and he experiences love in a very normal and human way, but it's not the way that Christians or that Christ showed love. And it's not the way that we are supposed to show yeah. love. Well, yeah. And so th that's a wonderful point because I think that's one of the very well done, just beautiful, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I've studied filmmaking and I, I, I took screenwriting courses and things like that. One of the reasons I love movies, I think, too, I just, I've, as I've gotten more into it, I even acted in a couple of little local things, but, you know, I'm not going to quit my day job. Um, <laughs> but um, 
I marvel as someone who has who has you know written screenplays or you know at least in for assignments. Like I, I understand what it takes to write a screenplay to get something from paper to screen like that. And and when you realize the beautiful way without saying it, without hitting you over the head with it, that's you're exactly right. You know. So in the beginning, you have De Niro's character, and you you see at the beginning when you first meet him, he's a slaver. He's capturing people, you know, in nets and selling them like, you know, property. So you get the feeling, oh, this guy's kind of a scumbag. But the same time, see how much he loves his brother uh, and how much he loves his wife. And then, well, then when he, of course, that's his jealousy is what leads to his jealousy and anger and rage leads to him killing his brother. Um, but but you're right. See, he, he, he does have love. I mean, you know, the only the only clue you have, is, like as you said, is the scene where, where um, Jeremy Irons' uh, character, the Jesuit priest, first encounters De Niro's character. It's after he's killed his brother, and he's kind of sulking and kind of beating himself up in the monastery uh, for what he did. Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't want penance. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not. He, he kind of says he acts like he believes he's beyond that. You know, there's nothing for what he's done that would make it better. Um, and then, so yeah, the only clue you get is uh, that line where Iron says, you love your brother, but you chose a funny way of showing it. And that's what makes him, I think, if I remember correctly, that's what kind of makes him snap. He grabs him, he grabs the priest and throws him against the wall, right? Like he's gonna, he's gonna kill him too. Yeah. Um, but he knows he's right, right? It's like, I had love, but it was a very selfish love, a very, you know, what we would say, you know, it's, it's Eros or it's, uh, maybe phileo, but it's still a, lo- a conditional kind of love. I love you if you love me back. Mm-hmm. I love you if you don't color outside these lines. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a love that's very much tainted with, um, uh, well, <laughs> I don't necessarily use a lot of the postmodern language or whatever, but but a, kind of like a toxic masculinity. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's very concerned about uh, you know himself and his ego and his insults to his person. Yep. Um, and um, and actually that 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 very much connects with. Th- there's that place where he's reading the uh, the love chapter, First Corinthians thirteen, mm. and uh, he reads he, he reads it out loud. It's in a narration or whatever. It's like a, a dub, but um, that sort of represents that he is beginning to learn this new way of thinking about love. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- yeah, that's a, that's a- yeah, yeah. Sorry, that, that's, a, that's a powerful, pivotal scene where I think because, because a, a big part of the film is De Niro's sort of conversion process, right? So we see him in the beginning. He's a slaver. Uh, he's ruled by his passions. He kills his brother in a fit of rage. Um, then he's, you know, sulking and guilty and um, really on the edge of, 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 of suicide. You know, he's just like, I, no reason to live. Um, through through a period of redemption and forgiveness, which we have to talk about that scene in a minute, but he goes through this beautiful scene of redemption and forgiveness, and then on the other side of that, then there's that scene where Jeremy Irons, the the Jesuit priest character, hands De Niro a copy of the Bible and he says, "Read this," and when he opens it, it's First Corinthians thirteen, and then there's this beautiful ah, oh, it's just a beautiful to hear you. It's kind of almost like a little montage because you have a voiceover of De Niro. As he's continuing, he reads the whole. Um, if I have, you know, if I, you know, whatever. If I, if I give myself, give everything I own to the poor, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I, you know, the whole thing. But as he's reading it, it cuts to again, like sort of a montage of scenes 
with him spending time with these very simple villagers, these very simple, not villagers, but simple uh, tr uh, tribe, um, who are, again, the quote-unquote noble savages. And, um, but he's playing with the children, and uh, they're having fun, and they're laughing, and they're playing, and then it shows him doing, you know, like he's, he's I think he pulls a thorn out of the foot of a woman who's washing clothes or something uh, on the stream and that kind of a thing. And images of him getting it, you know what I mean? Understanding this is love, right? It's these simple things and it's, it's serving other people and, uh, and he gets it, right? And so you have this beautiful redemption story uh, of this character who goes from one, one extreme to another extreme. Mm -hmm. and, and that in itself would have been a beautiful, uh, I would say that right there would be most quote-unquote Christian films ever made. It would end right there. Um, <laughs> Without the complications. <laughs> yes. But yeah. then the, what makes this movie great is that then we introduce a complication where his character now, uh, having gone through all that, is now faced with a choice of, wait a minute, people are going to come in here and kill these people, these, these natives that I've, I now consider my new family. I love these people. I love these children. I love, you know, the people in this tribe. And then they're going to come and do what to them? They're going to just wipe them out and kill them and, and enslave them again? And he's like, I can't let that happen. And, and so he's he's now has this struggle of, you know, uh, he's grateful because he's 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 made this um, this journey, spiritual journey, because of the Jesuit faith, because of the, the Christian faith. But, but, and again, it's a tension between that and his old life, right? His mm -hmm. carrying the sword and, and violence. That's the way you solve problems. And so that, it, it introduces a really interesting complication. And again, that's why I would have said a few years ago that, oh, this movie is about that. And it is about that, but it's also about so much more. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, when he, he comes full circle in a sense and comes back to violence, but he does it with a different motivation, a different mindset. It, it does kind of bring to mind the fact that there are many Christians whose, whose motives are very pure, um, but who, whose, you know, ways of responding to issues may not be the way Christ wants them to. But mm -hmm. so you, you can look at De Niro and say, you know, in a lot of ways, he's still a very different person than he was in the beginning of the movie, but he, he finds himself, you know, reinstantiating these same patterns. And so, you know, one thing is this kind of idea of a set of like masculinity, um, you know, early in the film, there's two instances of, of him using violence uh, well, against Europeans anyway, because he, he starts by kidnapping the Guarani, yep. but um, are are prefaced by him asking, "Are you laughing yep. at me?" That's oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. And so he sort of uses this violence in the beginning to bring himself higher, uh, whereas the violence at the end is not to bring himself higher. It, it's meant mm -hmm. to be a sort of a sacrificial thing he's doing for the Guarani, uh, but it it it, it 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 he's using sort of these same tools that before were used to to destroy and, and out of pride. And um, and so you can kind of question yeah. whether you can use the same tools without, you know, for, for, uh, consistently with different yeah. kinds of motives. And, um, but, and I think in contrast though, you see Irons, he sort of instantiates like a, a more Christ-like masculinity, yes. uh, which is different. He's, he's in full command of himself and his choices, uh, but his strength, uh, but in his strength, he chooses not to use violence. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So and, yeah, and you know, here's the thing about this again, where um, I love that this film 
asks these questions. I love that the film puts both uh, Jeremy Irons' character, who's the Jesuit priest who, who is committed to nonviolent love, and, um, and takes De Niro's character, who has this incredible experience and yet in his mind now is using violence not, to, not for his own pride or arrogance, but to protect the innocence uh, of people that he loves. And I love that, that it, it puts both of them in this place of having to make a choice uh, and, and shows you both of their motivations. It doesn't, and again, here's the thing though, it doesn't have a point to make about either one of their decisions. Uh, because if it had a point to make, in other words, it, if, it, it was, if it was a film that wanted to be, which is what I thought it was, mm -hmm. <laughs> in my memory, uh, my faulty memory, if it was a film that wanted to make a point about um, the folly of choosing violence to respond, right? So from a, from a Christian nonviolent standpoint um, to you shouldn't do this, then it would have it, it prejudiced itself. It would have it favored one selection or one choice made over the other choice made. And uh, what I realized was is that in the end, they both die mm -hmm. and they both fail. So whether or not they had all in unison had, had agreed, all the priests had agreed together, um, we're not going to fight people and we're going to die with these people uh, if, we, if we have to. And we're going to die singing songs uh, of mercy and forgiveness, which is a beautiful scene where Irons is standing there with holding the, the crucifix and standing with all the children in front of the church and they're singing, you know, worship songs mm -hmm. uh, while they're all getting mowed down and, the, the, you know, it's, it's a beautiful and powerful scene. But what you realize is whether you fight, whether you, you stand nonviolently and, and resist, you die. I mean, they died, both, both died, both failed to stop uh, what happened. And yeah. um, so it's not, it doesn't have a point to make about the choices, but it just allows them both to make a different choice. And mm -hmm. for you to at least understand why they made the choices they made. And it's really up to you as the viewer to determine which one you think, you know, it, it puts you in that place of like, well, what would I do mm -hmm. if I was there? You know, if I was one of those priests and I saw this happening, mm -hmm. well, quite honestly, some of us would say, I'm going to, I'm going to fight with these people and die with these people. And some of us would say, no, I'm not going to fight, but I will stand there and I'll force them to, you want to kill, you want to do this, then you're going to kill me and you're going to kill little children while I'm worshiping. And make you do that if that's really what you're committed to do. And so it allows the viewer to kind of wrestle with it as well, which I like, you know what I mean? It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't force a point on you. It allows you to make a choice and to think about it for yourself, which I think is what a good film really does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it, I agree with you. I don't think that it, it necessarily tries to force a certain perspective though. I do think there are places where it signals at the very least, that we shouldn't view Iron's choice not to fight as a worse choice. That right. we ought we ought to think of it, you know, we ought to. It, it's at least on the same level, and mm, um, yes. and so that's sort of suggest at least suggested by the fact that. Well, <laughs> before I go there, maybe I'll say what it kind of brings up is this practical the, the practicality of violence and nonviolence, and particularly when you are dealing with a people who is subjugated and who cannot successfully rebel. Yes. Um, what, what is the practical benefit of violence? And in this case, whether they fought or they didn't fought, fight, they die. 
Yeah. And there are some places or sometimes where nonviolence actually is more practically beneficial. I mean, it actually tends to work in some cases where violence doesn't. And mm-hmm. part of the reason why, and this is kind of suggested in the film, which suggests that maybe it could have possibly went a different way, um, is that um, there, when you respond with violence, you tend to make the oppressor feel justified. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's that moment where, um, uh, I don't know, the commander perhaps <laughs> of one of the armies is is um, sees what Irons is doing, sees the nonviolent the, the nonviolence yep. of some of the Gorani, and he has a genuine crisis of conscience. Yes, and he sort of chooses to harden himself against it and to attack, nevertheless. But absolutely, but, honestly, I was gonna, thank you for thank you for bringing that up because see, I think that that was the point in the film when I thought. Wow. Okay. Where it really does do a beautiful job of of this decision to stand with them and and sing, you know, worship songs uh, alongside these children in front of the in front of the church. Because you're right. There, there's there's that scene where uh, the the commander is running up the hill, and behind him are several other soldiers. And when they get within earshot of the of the songs of the children singing, you know, glory to God, they pause. And some of them cross themselves and pray. And you mm. know it's like it's affecting them. They're, 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 they stop and they say, oh, what are we doing? You know? And in that moment, I thought, well, gosh, you know, what if uh, all those other – what if Irons could have successfully convinced the other Jesuits and the other male leaders of the tribe not to fight but to all stand together and, and and if the entire tribe had only stood there and not fought back, because mm-hmm. as you said, fighting back gives justification for the violence, right? Well, you're fighting us, well, I'm sort of defending myself. That's why I had to kill you. But if they were all standing there, like, it, is it possible? We don't know. Like, it could have at least been possible, as the film suggests to us, that if it had gone differently, that those people would have run up the hill with no resistance, and stood there, you know, had been given the order, mow down these children, kill these people who are standing there defenseless as they are singing glory to God, that at least some of those soldiers would have said, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. Um, because then you can't justify the violence, right? I was like, I'm just going to slaughter men, women, and children who are just in the process of worshiping God. It's like, it's like again, think about it for like a Catholic. It's like saying to a Catholic, walk into that church during mass and kill a bunch of other Catholics. What? No way. I'm, why would I do that? Right. And so, yeah, you're right. It kind of at least gives you the, the hope of the possibility of if they had had solidarity, right. If, if they all together could have not taken up arms that pot that, and here's the other thing about it. Even if it wouldn't have been, quote unquote, successful, um, again, we're talking this as, as a fiction because we know in history what did happen. But, um, but it at least gives you the possibility that um, even if it wasn't, quote unquote, successful, even if those soldiers eventually would have just given in to, well, I have to obey my orders, right? I'm, I'm being commanded to do something, so I'm going to follow my orders and I'm going to go on and do this horrific thing. That the deaths of those people, yes, they would have died. So... If you, if you if we if we call success not dying, <laughs> if success is I didn't die and uh, they didn't kill us and we and they didn't take over the village or, or the territory, well then yeah we failed. But if but if success is instead the redemption of the people who are killing you, 
And I would say those people, if they went through with it, would, would still have something now to go back home that they would carry back with them in their heart and in their minds to say, that was wrong. That was evil. I will never do that again. You know what I mean? So there would have been a transformational opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do something in the lives and the hearts of those men mm-hmm. to at least recognize we did evil today. Because otherwise, again, if you meet violence with violence, as you said, they go home thinking, I didn't do evil today. I, I did something patriotic for my nation. You know, uh, because I love my country, I, I followed orders like a good soldier. And I did something that needed to be done. It was horrible, but it had to be done. Well, yeah, and, and actually, I think that there's a there's a hint of what could have happened in De Niro's penance early in the film, because his penance yeah. that he chooses for himself is to carry around this like heavy burden. It's like this big sack filled with, you know, metal <laughs> metals and things like that. Isn't it? No, it, it but I, I, not just metals, though. I think I think it's actually armor. It I think you're like right. It is armor. He's, he's carrying like a conquistadorian kind of like helmets and breastplate and shield and, and sword right yeah, and, yeah, and we right. know he has so it's like a yeah. lot of stuff like and it's a lot of other junk too but you can t- it's rattling like metal so yeah it is kind of like weapons well that's of war. interesting yeah because maybe it's symbolic of the burden of, of violence that he's carrying with him yeah so um so in, in you know the jesuits uh you know irons basically says well as long as you want to carry this thing around do it you know, as long as you feel like you need to do it do it Mm-hmm. Whereas the other priests are like, no, we need to stop him. We need to tell him to cut it out. And Iron's you know, whole point is, you know, and I like this because it's kind of an approach, I think, to how we should think about evangelism sometimes. It's mm-hmm. not something we can force on somebody. We basically are just there to help shoulder the burden yep. until they're ready to release it. And, um, and so that's kind of what happens with Iron. There's points where he has to help De Niro, even though he thinks it's very silly for him to be carrying around this burden of his guilt, which is what it is representing anyway. Yeah. Um, he's he's willing to help him shoulder it, yeah. And uh, you know, but I, I think yeah. One, I think it may be. I don't remember if it's. Uh, um, wait, one one of the priests uh, says, you know, explicitly, how long is he going to carry that stupid thing? Uh, you know, what? it's Liam Neeson, by the way. Is it Neeson? Okay, Neeson. I couldn't remember if it was Neeson. Yeah, yeah, he's in this film, and it, you almost don't. I think it must have been one of his first films because he's not one of the one of the top billed actors. No, he's not. He's he's, he's in there some, but he's definitely not one of the major characters. And and what's interesting is, you know, while while De Niro is at one point carrying this thing up a cliff as they're traveling, it almost kills him. And Irons yep. grabs him as he's about to fall and pulls him up. Yep. And, you know, it kind of represents this idea that unreleased guilt is destructive. You know, he, he if he doesn't get rid of this thing, it's going to kill him. And, um, you know, like I said, Irons doesn't force him. Um, he, he helps him up. He quietly supports him. Um, and he partners with him and shows the patient love of Christ, which I think is, is, is beautiful. And the moment where De Niro finally is willing to get rid of it. Because at one point, one of the priests tries to cut it off. No, no, actually, Liam Neeson's character does. He gets just he so does, disgusted yeah. uh, with this guy. Because he, first of all, he's slowing them down. And again, he keeps falling and getting up and falling and getting up and falling. And uh, yeah, Liam Neeson takes, a, takes a, little, uh, a little dagger and cuts the rope. And it rolls down the hill. And then De Niro's character walks back down the hill, rope again, and comes right and carries it right back up again. And that's when, uh, you know, Jeremy Irons' character tells Liam Neeson's character, we can't, you know, this is his burden to carry. We have to let him do it yeah. uh, until, he's, until he can forgive himself. And, and the point at which he forgives himself, it's not a realization he makes. What no. actually happens is they finally get to the Gurani. And which, is, seems- which, by the way, which, by the way, just in case we remind everybody, they get to the, to the Gurani, who are the tribe of people that he has been capturing and enslaving. Yeah. 
And you yeah. get a sense, even though you can't understand what they're saying, that they may recognize him. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. they're like, oh, that's him. Because actually, the little kids do it first. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the the little kids are watching what's happening, and they look at each other, and they say something, and they run over to the to the uh, of the tribe, and they tell him something, and then he's like, oh. so that so you get that realization of oh, it's that guy. Yeah, he's he's the guy that's been capturing our people. And even though you know De Niro's ha hasn't really, you know, that at the very least he's feeling the guilt over killing his brother you get a sense that the slavery is what he's done is as a slaver is also connected to that guilt. He, he sort of talks about it a little bit. And, um, yeah. and what happens is one of the natives comes over to him with a knife. And at mm. first you think he's going to slit his throat and he seems yep. like he may do it. And De Niro is perfectly willing to let him do it. He feels, yeah, he's actually closing he his deserves eyes. This. Yeah. He closes his eyes like, yes, this is, this is what I deserve. <laughs> yeah. And instead the native cuts the burden off. The Guarani cuts the burden, cuts yes. the rope. Yes. And yeah. uh, it's one of the, but it's one of the most beautiful scenes yeah. in that movie. If, if anyone has ever seen that movie, that's the one scene you come away with that you'll never get out of your mind because yeah. it's such a beautiful, again, most Christian movies would end right there. It's such yeah. a beautiful scene of redemption because again, um, one of the, one of the priests cut the rope a long time ago, you know, earlier yeah. he crawled back down and pulled it back up. It's the, the difference is it's, it's who cut the burden. The person who cut the burden off was someone who should, by all rights, have killed him, who should have mm -hmm. hated him, right? You've taken yeah. my brothers and my children and my sisters as, as slaves. You've taken them away from me. How in the world could this guy forgive him? But he does. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's that realization that's where De Niro's character finally breaks. It's honestly, what's funny is De Niro's character doesn't forgive himself. You don't ever have the point point where he says, okay, I forgive myself for killing my brother. Mm -hmm. Receives forgiveness from someone who by all rights should hate him. And it's because that person forgives him. That's why he forgives. That's why he receives mercy and grace because yeah. he knows he doesn't deserve it, but it's so beautiful, right? It's, a, it's, it's, it's Christ. It's the love and forgiveness of Christ. And that scene when he cuts it off it and rolls the down river. the hill. Huh? I think he throws it into the river. He kicks it into the river or something like that. Yeah, he kicks he? it and it rolls down the hill into the river, into the, the river below. And then De Niro's character just starts weeping and sobbing. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm crying, listening, remembering it. It's so beautiful. And then, then the tribe comes around him, their children come around him, and they hug him. And uh, it's just this beautiful scene of redemption and forgiveness. And then you realize, okay, let's back this, let's back this up. If at the beginning of the movie you know, um, the Jesuits had given up on that tribe because, oh, they keep killing our missionaries. I mean, they're killing our missionaries. Well, they forgive, the missionaries forgive the tribe and they continue to come in devotion and love, sincere love for these people because they want to bring them the gospel. Well, that gospel then takes root to the point that these tribesmen, these, these people in this tribe see the man responsible for their hardship, and they instantly forgive him. Why do they forgive him? Because they've been touched with the gospel. They've been transformed with the love of Jesus. They know, I mean, the priest doesn't tell them what to do. He, he's watching. You even see him. Okay, what's going to happen? He has no idea what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's going to happen? How are they going to react now that they know who this guy is? And so when they cut that bird, it was their decision because of the gospel had his, the gospel he had brought to that tribe had taken root and transformed those, tri those, those tribesmen and those people 
to the point that they're willing to forgive. And so their, their forgiveness results in his redemption and his forgiveness. It's beautiful. Which, which I think perhaps points to what could have happened at the end of the film. Yeah. If they had been yeah. unified in their response of love and forgiveness, how it might have transformed the yeah. Spanish well, and Portuguese armies. Maybe, maybe, wonder, maybe not, but maybe. Yeah, and so, you know, there, there is a point in the film. I, I, I wonder if, again, this is very subtle, and, you, and we're talking about a movie, but um, it's possible that, um, that De, the, the fact that De Niro's character wants to fight uh, is, is pivotal in the rest of the tribe fighting also. Like, in other words, I think they looked up to him he had become someone in the tribe that he loved them like family, but they also loved him like family. And because he and Liam Neeson's character, the other priest, decide we're going to fight, that it sways the tribe to fight. And that if and if De Niro could have the priests, if all the other priests had just stood their ground and said no, that it might have worked. Because as you said, they've already shown mercy once to a guy they have no reason to show mercy to. Like they mm -hmm. probably could have swayed you know, um, them not to fight. You don't know. Again, it's, it's, it's a gray area, but it gives you again, that hope of what could have been. Well, and uh, you know, I, I, there's kind of a, a theme that's here, you know, that I think is biblical, although I think it can also be carried too far, which is Christ's identification with the oppressed. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, De Niro, I think shows how that identification can be used incorrectly um, because, you know, what sort of happens in, you know, like a lot of Marxist kind of thinking is that, you know, you identify, this is the oppressor. I am the oppressed. Now I will use their tools against them and mm -hmm. I will become like them, but I'm still justified because I've put myself in this category. Yep. And, um, you know, so th there's that, that I think is the, the wrong use of that kind of thinking. But yeah, at the same time, there is like in Matthew 25, that idea that, you know, where, where the poor or the, the hurting or the, the naked or the hungry are or the prisoner, Jesus is there. So I think that's, that's definitely there. Yeah. And um, in this film, I think you see that because they're the, the church, which, you know, in, in traditional Catholic thought is the representative of God is in the wrong here. <laughs> and it's really by De Niro and Irons, disobeying their orders yep um that, because yeah because they're, they're ordered by the the cardinal to leave and, yeah. and they both are disobeying the church by saying we're not leaving yeah. but what's different is their response to uh, sure how, we're not we're all not leaving but what are we going to do sure but 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 the initial idea that we are going to identify with these people um it is it is by disobeying that that first initial disobedience that they are actually following christ right and, you know, but, so they, being a Christian in this case, and in many cases, means identifying with the outcast over uh, siding with structures of power which victimize them. Yeah. And, um, and I think that, you know, comes in, you really see that, I think, with this whole idea of where the, the Jesuit missionaries and, and the natives are sort of caught in this tug of war with these three parties that are vying for power, Spain, Portugal, and the church. And the church mm -hmm. is the one that you... you shouldn't be there <laughs> that, exactly yeah that that's where the entanglement comes in is that i realized that wow you know it's because the church is mixed up in the po political stuff going on between spain and portugal i mean in the end that's that's why this whole village gets wiped out 
um, yeah, if they weren't involved in the, what was going on between these these governments, yeah, this this probably could have been completely avoided. Well, and also you're at the end of the film after um, Cardinal Altamirano finds out that they have wiped out these you know, these Guarani, and he he sort of asks the Spanish governor Don Cabeza, you know, was that necessary? And he says, yes, given the legitimate purpose which you sanctioned. Yes, which you, <laughs> you know, sanctioned. Yes. Yeah. So the, 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 the church is guilty. It is responsible mm -hmm. for what's taken place because yeah. they were more concerned with holding on to power now in this life mm -hmm. than with following Christ. And I think that that is the, that is kind of what's happening. The church and the Spanish government, the Portuguese government and De Niro, uh, yeah. his character are, are essentially secular. They are, they, they only see what is happening right now in this life. Yep. And by, by not, by, by being that being so short sighted and not being able to look forward, um, and De Niro, I mean, his short-sightedness is, is very short-sighted because he knows they're going to die. So it's yeah. really, I mean, it's, it's it's a useless cause to begin with. Exactly. Um, it, it's it's that sort of short-sightedness that allows this evil to take place. Yeah. Um, and and I think you know the the thing, the reality is that when you aren't seeking to protect your power, you can do what is just and good. And it's that oh, yeah. desire to maintain power that creates these divided loyalties between Christ and something else. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I think um, one thing that I thought was interesting too was, and and I, I, you can't help but compare this film to Silence. Uh, mm -hmm. I like it. I just I saw Silence on the plane back from Cincinnati. Uh, so it's that is a Scorsese very fresh, film. huh? And that actually is a Scorsese film. And Liam Neeson is in both films, and that is a Scorsese film. You're right, and it's also and, both and it's about Jesus. Yeah, and it's a period. It's a period film where Liam Neeson plays a Jesuit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, what's interesting uh, comparing those two films is realizing that the Jesuits themselves, the priests on the ground, who are in the process of bringing the gospel to the natives, okay, they they are oblivious to the fact that they are pawns in a political game. Like, and if you ask them, this is only about bringing the love of Jesus to people who have never heard it. And that's why they're willing to die for it and, and give their lives for it. That this is all they care about. And they and then films, you have the moments where the Jesuits realize, oh, this, the, the, my government is actually using the, the this, these missionary efforts as, as a way of essentially colonialism. Uh, it's a way to advance um, the colonialistic tendencies of, of the empire that I'm born into. Uh, and and they're willing to let us die, and even to let these people die. Uh, you know, through that blood to be shed, uh, in the hopes that eventually, you know, Portugal or Spain or Holland or England uh, would be able to gain some kind of a foothold in this nation, and eventually gain some kind of influence over that nation and those people, and and, and gain power. That ultimately, you know, because they. They realize it, but they don't realize it in time. <laughs> they realize it too late when they're already so invested in, in what, what they think they're doing. And then they realize, oh, that's not really, like then be what I'm doing, but someone, someone else has another motive. And in the process, a lot of people are getting killed. Yeah. But by then it's too late. Like you can't do anything about it. You, you've, you've just, you've submitted yourself to the authority of your government. Um, and, uh, and now 
you're, you're, you're this, this thing is set in motion and a lot of people are going to die in the process. And then, and then you, you and I were talking before the recording, uh, you brought up an interesting, really interesting point about the difference between people, uh, the, the natives that we see in the mission who are again, the quote unquote noble savages, right? They're like stone age people. They never seen an oboe before. They've never well, they talk about people. Eden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, they, they, they compare it to Eden. And, yeah, and they're uh, the, what 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 sort of makes them amenable or amenable to uh, to irons is that he plays is it a lute or something for them? Yeah, he plays an oboe. Like the, yeah, an oboe, oboe. Yeah, so so music uh, music uh, uh, soothes the savage beast kind of thing. Right, and it's so, also <laughs> yeah, it's a pivotal moment too because again, in the beginning of the of the mission, we see a missionary being killed. You get the feeling a lot of missionaries has been have been killed. Uh, Jeremy Irons again says, I, "I have to go up there to those people anyway." So in love, he goes up again, risks his life, but the way he woos them, as you said, he pulls out this oboe and he starts playing the music, and they, you know, the, these these warriors with their, you know, their bows drawn and their spears ready to throw to kill him. They're going to do the same thing to him that they've done to every other missionary. But now because he's playing this music, they put their weapons down and they come out of the bushes and they, they surround him in awe and beauty and just that sound. Right. And then the, the music is what softens their heart, right. Which gives him this inroad. And that's kind of what breaks everything down that now he's able to, to share the gospel with them. Mm -hmm. um, which is also pivotal for the end of the film. And one of these beautiful things that come back later, because at the end of the film, everyone's dead, except for a few children um, who are left alive, you know, and so little, little boys and girls, adolescent age, who, who are left alive after the carnage. And they get in a canoe and they start to go down the river, but a little girl jumps out laying there and she picks up a violin and gets back in the boat and they go away. And it's like, that's the only thing they take with them. That's the only thing to value that, that they felt like, uh, these children felt like, well, let's keep the music they brought us, right? That was beautiful. Let's keep the instruments. But they don't keep the religion. As, I mean, I think that's what the film is trying to say. They don't continue to keep the religion. They don't continue to keep the politics and all that stuff. They, they in other words, seem to be, the, the children seem to be the only one who recognize, oh, this is what happens. Things get mixed together. Look what happened. Everyone's dead. Uh, we give up. We're, we are, we're abandoning that. We're going to just go this other direction. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think, you know, there, there are those sort of two extremes in which you can think about the relationship of, of European power to the rest of the world. And one of them is, you know, that, that these other people are noble savages, and the other one is that they're wicked heathens. Yes. And, and I think, um, and then there's the, kind of, there's the counter as well. So if, if, the, if the natives are these noble savages, then, you know, we're these people... Europeans or whatever, those who have lost sight of what's really good and we've lost mm -hmm. sight of what's valuable and we're sort of corrupted. But on the other hand, if they're these wicked heathens, then, then we're bringing this, this, this sort of civilized message to them. Yeah. And I, I don't think that the mission goes quite to that extreme. And I don't think silence on the other side goes to, to that ex the other extreme quite that far either. But no. there is a difference in that in the mission, Westerners are the oppressor and in silence, they are being oppressed. <laughs> And right. so there, there is sort of a difference in, in how, and you know, the thing is too, we're, we're looking at this after you know, hundreds of years of, of all these stereotypes and ways of thinking about this that may not be at all intentional in either film, but, um, but it, it is, it is certainly a difference um, in how those things. Well, you know, here's, here's the interesting. So I'm thinking about what you just said about how in the mission, um, 
you know, who, who's doing the oppressing and who's doing, who's being oppressed. But in silence, yeah, it's the Japanese government who is doing but the Japanese oppressing. people are also, yeah. But the, yeah, but it's the Japanese people. In other words, it doesn't matter. And the Japanese people are, the Japanese government is doing the oppressing, but only because they have this invasive, toxic, uh, you know, Catholic church in, you know, uh, swaying the hearts of their people. And, and here's the thing. The difference is, the difference between the natives in the mission and the natives in uh, silence. The natives in silence, the Japanese culture is much more advanced. They're not a bunch mm-hmm. of savages. They're very intelligent. They're very smart. They're very savvy. And, and because of that, they know exactly what's going on. They see this as, oh, this isn't just some nice little, these people, they're so nice to our people. They're coming and bringing this beautiful religion of, of peace. Isn't that great? No, they get it. They understand, oh, this is Portugal's uh, attempt, uh, you know, a subversive attempt to infiltrate our culture and, and gain political influence over our nation. That's why they're killing these people because they don't want that influence from the outside coming in and taking over their, you know, infiltrating their culture. That's how the Japanese, they get it. They see it. And the funny thing is they see it and the Jesuits don't. Mm-hmm. What's, what, the, the, what happens in silence is uh, the, the inquisitor uh, explaining uh, in every way he knows how to this Jesuit priest uh, that this is what's really going on. You think you're bringing the gospel to these people but what you don't understand is no you're not you are helping your government gain a foothold in japan for political reasons political purposes and 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 that's why these people are dying they're dying because of the church influence and if the church influence was removed nobody would die and so it's still either way right the the reason people are dying at the end of the day is because the church is complicit in this kind of colonialism uh, and that's why end up people end up getting killed. The innocent in the middle, innocent people in the middle, they're the ones who die and suffer and die. I don't. It's I saw Silence when it was in theaters. I know you've seen it more recently. Yeah. Um, I don't remember a lot of the the political discussion. The thing I kind of recall more was this idea. They said that you know we've looked at your Christianity and we're just not interested in it. We don't think it's going to take hold in Japan. Uh, so they they do welcome some foreign in, invasiveness, but o- only only some. Right, you know, um, so there, there's some limitation of of the kind of trade they're going to do, and I think probably, obviously, a lot of it has to do with this idea of Japanese cultural sovereignty. Yes, at the very least, you know that you know we're going to decide what can come in and what can't. Um, yeah, but I, I get the feeling, um, and again, I, I don't think I'm projecting on it. I believe I believe there's there's dialogue in silence that talks. Um, they they see this religion as being. Uh, a threat to the hearts and minds of the people. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This is some. This is this is a a lever. Some leverage that Portugal and Spain and England and, and Holland, um, because they're the ones sending the missionaries, um, that they're attempting to exert this political, uh, you know, power over them. That's why they're so. Because uh, here's the thing: they, they they make a big deal in silence about the fact that oh, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians here before you killed them all and slaughtered them all. So it's like, well, we you, see, we had a huge, at one point, we had this very huge foothold here. And then this, this is what you don't get. Yes. And when you got that big and that powerful, where there were like one or 200,000 uh, Christians in Japan, that's when the Japanese government said, wait a minute. here, 
this is not just a couple of little Christians in a village over here in a fishing village on the, you know, something like a couple hundred people. This is several hundred thousand. And then they recognize, you know what, this is only going to continue. And pretty soon we're going to lose a grip on our own nation, on the hearts and minds of our own people. We've got to stop this now. Like this is the reason why I didn't, nope, we got to put an end to this. We got to stop this. Well, and I, I, I certainly do think that there is, Christianity is, I think, viewed with enough suspicion <laughs> when it's coming into a place where it's never been before. Yep. But when it's specifically connected with a power structure, yes, um, th- that I think makes it a lot more suspicious. And, um, and in the case of the mission, um, that power structure ends up being very detrimental. And, and so you sort of see these, these people, the Guarani, a lot of them who've converted to Christianity, and they're being told... Uh, by the cardinal that they should learn to submit to the will of God. And the will of God is defined as you need to leave your land because we said so. And the idea is, you know, we are the representatives of God on earth. And, uh, and I think the, the chief responds through translation (laughs) um, or uh, irons sort of communicates his words as he doesn't think you speak for God. He thinks you speak for the Portuguese. Yes. And, um, and that's a beautiful moment because that moment right there says, okay, again, the, the, the people get it. The, the, the people there on the ground, you know, the people, the tribes people, they clearly see what's going on. They're not confused at all. You you come here and tell us things that seem to benefit not not God. Why would God want us to leave the land he gave us, right? Uh, doesn't well, the, make any sense. Yeah, their, their idea is, yeah, that, that it was God's will to establish the mission. Why would he now be telling us to leave? Why did he change his mind, exactly? Yeah, why did he change his mind? Yeah. And, and, and it is that, and I think, you know, the... There is the political religious entanglement, but but I think also we would we would acknowledge as you know broadly Protestant and Baptist influenced Christians that there's also uh, a great deal of danger when you have you know it's it's the Catholic Church is not just their political entanglements but uh, through history but but also this idea that they get to speak for God and I think what ends up happening is you have people who for whether whether their their reason or their experience or their or their their careful reading of scripture whatever the case may be they're they're con- they're convinced that god has said this and then the church comes in and says mm-hmm. oh actually that's not what god says and so they're left in this place where they yep. either are going to go along with what the church is saying whether it's actually right or wrong <laughs> yep. or or they have to abandon the church and yep. and so that's this one of these other dangers of entanglement is that the the Jesuits have not brought Christ, just Christ. They have brought Roman Catholicism. Yes, and, yeah, and that is the that is yeah. always the problem, right? We end up at not only importing, we don't just bring the gospel in our missionary efforts. We do bring our culture, we do bring our assumptions. You know, our our own faith uh, is is entangled itself. So we're we're bringing an entangled faith when we bring it. Unfortunately. Um, we're not just bringing the gospel. We're also bringing morals and our culture and uh, like it or not. I mean, yeah, I think you'd have to be really um, vigilant, you know, to, in yourself if you were a missionary to say, I only want to bring them the gospel and I'm not going to impose my my suppositions upon them. That's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. I think, I think um, sorry to go back to this, to silence again. Uh, and again, I'm, I may be projecting onto silence something that it may not be trying to say, but I think it well, illustrates yeah. the possibility. You've seen it more recently than I have, so it's very possible that I'm just not remembering it quite okay. the same way. 
Well, yeah. okay. Well, tell me if, if you remember this, if you agree with this, this assessment. Um, at the end of silence, feeling, I mean, this is what I got, that, that the real mistake that the, that the Jesuits made was the, their method of bringing the gospel. In other words, it was the fact that the, the only, the, the, the method they, they chose and they, they were, they stuck, they, they had faith in it. They stuck with it to the very end, even to the point of dying for it was this, you know, the traditional way of you, know, you show, you come in, you share the gospel, you build a church, you have them go through mass, you know, you do the whole thing, you give them all the icons and the crosses and the blah, 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 right? Okay, so obviously in, in Japan, that didn't work. Um, but what does work? Well, what seems to me, again, I, I don't know if I'm projecting, but it seems to me what silence seems to be suggesting, at least in, in, in theory, is the idea that, you know what would have worked? What if, what if, they had changed their tactic and what if they instead had just sent people in who became tradesmen uh who, who taught english uh or you know had some kind of a trade there in japan they took a they took a japanese wife they had um and then just slowly quietly uh one-to-one -one, they started sharing the gospel with people in other words underneath the radar of the government not outwardly, not building some big church building on the, on the corner, you know, uh, not walking around with crosses around their necks and that kind of stuff. Um, but in other words, you know what I'm saying? Because that's what seems to work in, in silence. It seems like it's are kind of forced. They don't get it, but they're sort of forced into this way of living. And then suddenly now that they're living as a Japanese person in the Japanese culture, they're slowly having an influence on the people around them as they just quietly live a Christ-like life, quietly share their faith one-to-one. -one. It's like, oh, maybe that would have been a better tactic. And then maybe a bunch of people wouldn't have died. Well, even there, though, there, there's, a, there's a kind of corruption because you, you, when, they, when these, these priests arrive to some of these villages where they, there are these secret Christians, they say, you know, we haven't been able to keep communion because we haven't had a priest. We haven't right. been able to do confession because we haven't had a priest. Yes. And there's this whole idea that without this chain of command, without this power structure, yes. Christ can't be there. <laughs> Which is crazy. Yeah. yeah and, and, and at the end of silence, of course, it's Christ is actually present wherever the, the powerless and disenfranchised and hurting are. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where you find Christ. You don't find Christ in, 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 the, priesthood. in priests and, you know, the priesthood. And, 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 and I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a little something to that in the mission as well. And you see sort of Jeremy Irons at the end of the film seems that he's gotten that to some degree. And when De Niro asks him for a blessing as he's going to mm -hmm. lead these armies uh, of, of Gorani, uh, Irons responds, um, uh, if you're right, you'll have God's blessing. If you're wrong, my blessing won't mean anything. And, oh, it's, and beautiful. Yeah. it's beautiful, but it also undermines the claims of, I think, and I don't want to be too hard on my Catholic friends, but I think it undermines the, it undermines the claims of, of the sort of magisterial viewpoint uh of the church where you know we are um or sorry i'm thinking of the magisterium the idea of the the authority within the church uh gets to speak for god and de niro looks to irons because he's his sort of father in the faith and he's his you know the sort of the head of this particular jesuit uh community uh but irons basically says my opinion doesn't ultimately matter what matters what matters is god's opinion yeah, and, and you know, uh, though, I, I would challenge, though, a even um, 
I agree. I think I think it's kind of cool what he says there, because and what like as you're pointing out, he's challenging the the authority of the church, and uh, and as we've already pointed out, they all uh, all of the priests in this situation defy to do what they think really Jesus would want them to do, which is not to obey the church, but to obey what they think is what Christ would do, which is to stand with these people who have now become part of their family. Um, but at the same time, that statement that Irons makes that, you know, if, uh, if God is, if, if you're doing what God wants, you'll be successful, uh, and you'll be blessed. But if you're not, my blessing won't mean anything. Uh, but on another level, what that says is that, okay, let's suppose De Niro had been right and he had slaughtered a bunch of people and killed all the, you know, like, does that mean that was right? In other words, so let's flip it around. So, so what ends up happening is then uh, these soldiers who come in who wipe out men, women, and children and kill every last one of them, were they right? Because they won. Their sword prevailed, so that must mean they were right, right? And, that, and so the point of the film is actually no. It doesn't matter who won the battle. It does it, it, God? God's approval is not revealed by who has the more powerful army or mm-hmm. who who slays the most people in the battle. All right, yeah. that's that's a very think that that you know that 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 has nothing to do with who's really right or wrong. Yeah, I think I may have read something a little different into blessing, which was that God can bless you and you can still fail. So that. That, but, but maybe maybe what De Niro was asking for was, I want God's blessing, so I'll be successful, and that very well could be what he meant by that. But maybe, I didn't yeah. I didn't read that quite into that, but um, or I didn't understand that yeah. that was he was that's what he was saying. Um, yeah, and and you know, I'll uh, we're 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 getting pretty far into this. I'll I, I wanted to uh, end by uh, well, I want you to be able to say whatever you want to say, but there, there's one thing that um, if you wanted to finish up in any way, um, irons points out this dichotomy early in the film, I think it's Irons, when he uh, contrasts the everlasting mercy of God and the short-lived mercy of man. Hmm. And I think, you know, if, if, if you were to sort of look for a very simple theme <laughs> in the yeah. film, I, I think that quote kind of uh, summarizes it in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and I, this is this is one of my favorite films. I, I love it, and it's you know, it's not completely perfect. There's things you could you could quibble over, but um, you yeah, know, can I, can I suggest something real quick? Yeah. When I watched it, when I watched it again most recently, a couple of a couple of weeks ago, um, I I thought, you know, would have been a would have been a really cool ending. Tell me what you think. I thought interesting, at least if it had ended. Maybe this is just me again wanting to project something onto it, but. So there's the scene again where at the end, you know, De Niro, in fact, De Niro's sword uh, comes back to him because one of the boys who looks up to him goes down into the river, finds that bag of crap that he had pulled up that they had cut off of him, right? Mm-hmm. This is the burden. This was part of his sin. The way of his guilt. Yeah. yeah it, that, that tribe in obedience to Christ had forgiven him of and cut it off and rolled it. And that was the reason he became a Christian. It's the reason he, he had a lot a change in his life. And so the little boy who looks up to De Niro, the mountain digs out, you know, finds this rusted muddy sword, carries it back up to De Niro and hands it to him. And there's that moment where De Niro looks at the boy and he looks at the sword, sit back. And then that is the moment of like, ah, you're going. You, you're, in other words, you're, you're undoing your your salvation. You're undoing your the moment of of uh, 
redemption, right? You're going back to that thing that you would cut off. Um, well, yeah. And it's interesting that it's, a, yeah. it's someone in the tribe who actually not only gives him so that he can be experience redemption, it's also someone in the tribe who brings that sword back up out of the muck and hands sure. it to him. Well, it's interesting then is that you know early in the film, the sword makes sense to him. But at this point, he sees it for what yeah. it is, but he still takes it back. It's rusty, it's dirty, it's covered in muck. There's, there's a real quick, real quick. There's, there's a part though then where at the end where he's laying there dead, right? And the, the same boy who handed him the sword is standing over his dead body, and the boy looks around at all the carnage and looks down at De Niro, this man he had uh, idolized, right, uh, and, and, and had been like a father figure to him. And I thought, wouldn't it have been interesting if he had reached down and taken up the sword that he had handed to De Niro and looked at it and then dropped it? and then taken the cross from around and taken that with him. In other words, if that little boy had learned something in that moment of saying, okay, that sword didn't, didn't win, didn't prevail, and I'm rejecting that sword, I'm going to take the cross. Like, I know and the, the ending does something different. The ending has the children not take a cross, not take a sword, violin, and go off. Um, which is sort of a middle ground kind of a thing. But I thought that would have been an interesting, even if the little boy had at least picked up the, the sword and looked at it and realized, oh, wow, that's all this is good for, right? This sword helped to create this mm -hmm. destruction. Sure, and there'd be the uh, contrast oh, of the that sword would have been an interesting scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, I that's my that, director's yeah. cut. I like that. That's, that's good. My, that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 another, I had a note here, but I didn't really get around to mentioning it, but the thing with the sword... Um, you know, it's interesting to me that De Niro early in the film after he's converted won't kill a pig yes. um, when, he's, when he's asked to. But by the end of the film, he's yeah. ready to kill men again. Yes. That's, that's, pretty that's a great point, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. So, so uh, Keith, I, I'd like you to one more time remind people uh, where they can about your book and where they can find more information about you if they're interested in, in learning a little bit more about you, reading more of what you've done and that kind of thing. Yeah, you just go to, my blog is my name. It's just K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S, KeithGiles.com. Uh, and then on that, on my blog there, you'll find links to my book. But, or you go to Amazon, Jesus Untangled. It's available there uh, on Amazon. And you can check that out. And um, so thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Oh, it was really fun. I really appreciated you doing it. It was, it was, really, it was really a lot of fun. Well, it was, it was fun. It's kind of, a, kind of a heavy movie, but it was fun. <laughs> Thank you, Keith. Interesting talking about stuff like this. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, and I think I, I started doing this just because I, as someone who loves films and who loves who loves the gospel, I, I think that there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of great movies that explore these themes better than better. Than, I think in a lot of cases better than some of the films that are coming out of the Christian media world. But th this was one that I think uh, I would say better in every. In every case, it's like, we, you know what? You and I should do a podcast where we just discuss why Christian movies are so bad and why movies like this that are not quote unquote Christian movies do a much better job of mm -hmm. communicating the, the, the power and the truth of the gospel. Uh, and, and, and why is it Christians can't get it? Why can't we make movies like The Mission or Silence or that kind of thing? Well, I'll tell you uh, what. That, that in yeah. itself is an interesting topic. Absolutely. Well, actually, okay. I'm, I'm on my wish list uh, is uh, uh, future podcasts is to do a double header to discuss silence and the shack because they both deal with, <laughs> uh, um, you know, the, the odyssey and suffering and where's God and all this mess kind of stuff. But oh, they, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. 
So it kind of contrasts them. Yeah, that's good. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's something we'll talk about at some point. Whatever, if you've got some time on your schedule. Love to do this again, man. I could. I love talking about movies, and uh, this sounds. This is fun. So anytime you want to do it, let's set something up. 